You're tuned in to Strange Broadcast. Warning, this episode contains violence and sexually explicit content. Armin Mivas was born December 1, 1961, to an affluent family in Essen, West Germany. At 39 years old, Armin would be his mother, Valtrude Mivas's only child, and his father's third son. Along with his parents, Armin would spend his early childhood with his two older half-brothers, Wolfgang and Engelbert. Armin's parents' relationship was turbulent creating a lot of stress in young Armin's life. It was not all bad, though. The family would often spend weekends and school holidays in their country house, a 43-room manor in Worcesterfield, a rural village with a population of 14, just a few miles west of Roddenberg. 250 miles away from the hustle and bustle of Essen, Worcesterfield is what I imagine a little German village would look like. The area is known for its medieval architecture, with half-timber houses lining cobblestone streets. It was in this picturesque village, in September of 1969, that eight-year-old Armin's parents' marriage would reach a breaking point. While playing outside, Armin would watch his father storm out of the house with nothing more than the clothes on his back, never to return again. Soon after his father left, Armin's half-brothers would move away to live with their mother. Armin felt abandoned by his father and brothers, a feeling that wasn't helped by his overbearing mother. Veltrude Mivis was a proud woman who thought highly of herself. Born into a wealthy family in 1922, she would spend her early childhood years in a country first at war and then divided. In a time when many Germans had little, she would grow up in abundance. Veltrude wouldn't be so lucky when it came to love, though. At 47 years old and divorced twice before, she found herself husbandless for the third time. Heartbroken, she would contract from the world, almost never leaving the confines of her home. From inside the walls of her 43-room manor, Veltrude would create a fantasy world for herself and Armin. She saw herself as the lady of the manor, and Armin her knave. Veltrude would dress Armin up in traditional German lederhosen and insist he wait on her hand and foot. The two would also spend countless hours decorating the many rooms of the manor. If you were to walk through the Mivis Manor, you would see brass plaques on the doors, proclaiming the themes of the rooms. Names like Morning Dew and Sunlight. But if you were to keep venturing to the second floor, down a long dark hallway, you would see a room simply labeled Child's Room, sparsely decorated in comparison to the rest of the manor. 
It was in this room that Voltrude would keep a developing Armin, locked away for hours on end. In his isolation, Armin would long for the companionship he once had with his brothers. Armin knew it would never be possible for him to have younger brothers of his own. So at the age of nine, he invented an imaginary brother named Frank. Armin recalls the inspiration for his imaginary brother came from a schoolmate named Frank. He was a school friend who wasn't in my grade, but in a grade below me. Frank is his name. I had always imagined him as a younger brother. Frank was more than your ordinary, imaginary brother. He made Armin feel like he was not alone. He was someone he could confide in, someone who would not reject Armin. To Frank, Armin was so many things. We'll hear more about that later. It was around this time that Armin would become fascinated with stories about cannibals. He would read fairy tales like Hensel and Gretel. He would begin to fantasize about eating other kids. And even sometimes Frank. Armin would create his own stories. Alone in his room, he would imagine dismembering and eating his classmates. Armin began to think that the only way for someone to truly be with him forever was to eat them. Around puberty, Armin would begin to have sexual feelings about eating someone of the same gender. Armin would begin to fantasize about his imaginary little brother Frank. He would imagine Frank with attributes of classmates he found attractive. He was Armin's first crush. Although Armin was beginning to explore his interest in the same sex, he would have relatively normal early experiences with girls. He would recall his first kiss. My first kiss was in Worcesterfield with a girl from the neighborhood. It was Andrea. Aside from wanting to eat his dates, Armin's early love life was also hindered by his mother. The neighbor girl, Andrea, the one Armin said he had his first kiss with, had this to say about Voltrude. People said that when Armin took girls home, she scared them all off. It seems to me that she just wanted what was best for her son. She knew what kind of daughter-in-law she wanted, but she probably didn't realize that the girls she liked were in another league from Armin. As a teenager, Armin was under the constant scrutiny of his mother. The abuse he had experienced as a child would carry on into his teens. While his peers were having fun, Armin would spend his free time in the confines of the manor. Manfred Stuck, a neighbor of Armin's and co-worker, had this to say. Around the age when we started going out to discos, from when we were 15 up until about 18 or 19, I didn't see much of Armin or even notice him. He wasn't in my group of friends. He was always stuck at home, hanging around in the same old clothes, and that's just how it was. 
He lived a secluded existence in his big house. In 1981, at the age of 19, Armin would join the West German army. This gave him some much-needed relief from his mother, at least during the day. Armin was stationed in Rodenburg, just miles from his childhood home. During the day, Armin would put on his uniform and do his duty to his country. But in the evening, he would put on a more metaphorical uniform and take care of his aging mother. With his unit so close, Armin would never actually move out of the manor. Although he would rise through the ranks of the supply corps, Armin was considered a pushover by others in his unit. It wasn't so obvious that he couldn't assert himself. When a group of us from the supplies unit were sitting around, we treated each other like friends. When Armin said, time to sweep, we'd say, do it yourself. Armin truly enjoyed his life in the West German army. Most of his free time was occupied, and he was able to get away from the isolation of the manor. He would find camaraderie and friendship in the army. Because of this, Armin's interest in cannibalism would be put on the back burner. For now, anyway. Armin still struggled with more intimate relationships. He asked me what I thought, whether I thought he was gay. There had been some rumors of a man in the barracks kissing him on the cheek. I wasn't there. He told me about it. I said, you must figure out yourself which sex you feel attracted to. Armin would eventually seek the help of a marriage agency. Through the agency, Armin would begin talking to a woman named Petra. The two would become engaged, but she was unwilling to move in with Armin and his mother. The relationship would fizzle out. Disappointed with love, Armin would turn his focus on other things. Through the army, Armin would meet a group of sailing enthusiasts. In 1991, he would go on his first sailing expedition, telling his mother he would be gone for two weeks for military training. Two years later, Armin would want to go on another expedition. This time, he didn't want to lie to his mother. He wanted her approval for the trip. She demanded to meet the captain. Herbert Brinkman, the captain of the expedition, recalls going to meet Frau Mivis. When I got there and saw the old entrance hall, I thought, my god, where am I? It was just like being in the Middle Ages, in that old house, with the old carpets, old furniture, and so on. After interrogating Captain Brinkman, Voltrude agreed that Armin could go on the trip. Why was she so worried? It was unnecessary. He was 30 years old. He would check in with his mother almost daily. He called her nearly every other day. He obviously had to. I suspect he had been giving orders. Call and tell me where you are and if you're all right. With his mother's health declining, she became increasingly demanding of Armin's time. He was not able to meet his mother's needs and continue his career in the army. After 12 years of service, 
Armin would retire to take full-time care of his mother. In 1996, Voltrude would get in a car accident that she would never fully recover from. Shortly after, she would suffer a hip injury, leaving her incapacitated. She was no longer the youngest. She was over 77. She had been seriously ill for the last few years. We had a traffic accident in 1996. She was very badly injured. She went to the hospital but never fully recovered. In her last years, on New Year's Eve, she went to use the bathroom and fell, injured her hip. She was no longer able to take care of herself. Then, every five minutes, she wanted something else, nerve-wracking without end. In 1999, Voltrude Mivis would pass away from a heart attack. The coroner believed she had passed sometime around noon. Armin would come home to find her dead body hours later. He reacted quite normally, just like anyone who loses their mother. He was sad, he cried, he was glad to have the help from the neighbors. One neighbor baked a cake. I brought some bread rolls. We laid the table for the wake and looked after things. Without his mother around, Armin didn't have to hide his dark fantasies anymore. He was free to explore the feelings that he had kept bottled up inside for so long. Armin Mivis was now free to eat another human being. Armin began to explore his sexuality. While his mother had been alive, he had not been free to do so. On the weekends, Armin would drive three hours from Worcesterfield to the Blue Moon. There in the four-story blue exterior brothel in Duisburg, Armin was free to explore most of his fantasies. Although Armin would tell others about his relationships and sexual escapades, those that knew him best didn't really believe him. He wasn't exactly the most masculine man. He behaved how you'd expect a gay man to behave, but we didn't know for sure, especially as he had showed interest in me. It was absurd. Like a sexual relationship with Mickey Mouse. No way, it was unthinkable. Once he told me he had been engaged and had a fiancé in Castle, I teased him and said, Armin, how could you take anyone back to your house? I'd never have dared to take a girl there. With little sexual experience, Armin would revert back to his childhood cannibal fantasies. Armin felt torn, like there was two people inside of him, he even seriously pondered if he had been possessed by a demon. But as he did more research and soul-searching, he began to realize that being a cannibal might be something he could make fit into his life. Randolph Egg, a criminal psychologist familiar with Armin, and Mark Benecki, a forensic biologist 
will help explain Armin's sexual cannibal desires. The psychological explanation is that there's nothing in the world that cannot be uh, become uh, a part of a sexual arousal. You just learn that there's something in the world that gives you a sexual arousal that doesn't for other persons. We can understand many fetishism or many things that relate to fetishism. For example, many people understand that shoes can be nice. So we have a kind of uh, an understanding that somebody may find shoes super, super, super nice. Along with his mother's death, something else happened in 1999. Not just to Armin, but to all of Germany. On June 1st, Deutsche Telekom would release its DSL internet service across Germany, giving Armin just the tool he needed to meet other like-minded individuals. Armin, who had always been interested in computers, became even more passionate about them when he got the internet. I remember one night my computer crashed, and I called him up after midnight. I yelled, get over here and fix it for me. Three minutes later, he was there. Armin would even begin making renovations to his house in the hopes that he could start a computer school. He couldn't maintain the house as he would have liked, but he had done a few things. He painted the exterior, and from the outside, it looked reasonable. Then, he started to install sinks and toilets in the upstairs bathrooms. He had originally planned to give courses, computer courses, as weekend seminars and workshops, and he wanted to be able to offer the participants overnight accommodations. To be quite honest, the house needed to be gutted and totally redone. While on the internet, Armin would discover chat rooms and websites devoted to cannibalism. The feeling that something was wrong with him was starting to fade. And this uh, made uh, his second uh, form of sexuality stronger and stronger in a, yeah, let me say, obsessive way. Armin prepared to turn his fantasy into reality. In preparation to entertain a certain type of guest, Armin would construct a kill room. He built a cage big enough to keep a human confined. He would attach a large hook to the ceiling, strong enough to hang a body from, and he would secure restraints to a small bed in the corner of the room. Armin Mivis, who had spent his whole life hiding, didn't raise any suspicions of those around him. They totally adapt to the situation that they are different, they are the freaks, they know that, and they will not tell anybody. Armin would begin to share pictures of his handiwork in the Looking for Love sections of cannibal websites. Using the screen name Anthropagus, Armin would create posts looking for young, fit men to be slaughtered and eaten. He would even meet up with several men, hoping they would be able to fulfill his fantasies, but none of them were actually interested in being eaten. For most of uh, the people who are active in these internet rooms, role-playing is enough because uh, they know that uh, this is not only abnormal but also illegal and uh, they uh, really don't have the idea to kill and eat someone else, but they love to have the, the fantasy. This is just playing. On February 5th, 2001, 
Armin would receive the message he had been hoping for, a reply to an ad he posted on a Yahoo Messenger group dedicated to cannibals. Hey people of Earth, thank you so much for listening. I just wanted to take a minute at the end of this episode to address some discrepancies in reporting. There's a lot of information out there that says the two men met on a website called the Cannibal Cafe. This simply isn't true. The owner and moderator had this to say. Regarding Armin Mivis, Armin Mivis did in fact post his trolls on a previous incarnation of this forum which was known as the Cannibal Cafe and was hosted by Necrobabes. However, Herr Mivis did not meet Jorgen Brandis in this venue. They met in a more or less gay cannibal Yahoo group, which I was able to point out to the German Federal Police after I was interviewed by a TV crew from Das Spiegel TV magazine within a few days of Mivis' arrest. At the time, I was living in Toronto and the Cannibal Cafe was literally flooded off the web by a concentrated, well-organized flood of traffic that originated in Germany, where it was widely believed that the Cannibal Café was the venue where Armin Mivis arranged to have dinner with Herr Brandis. On top of the statement from the owner, the Cannibal Café's forum didn't exist till April of 2001. Armin Mivis and Bert Brandis would meet a month earlier, Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. The rest of the story will be out soon. You're listening to Strange Broadcast. Until next time, keep on keeping on.